Well, this morning, um, I want to ask you a simple question, and you've kind of been led to this point anyway um, by what Don read in the public reading. The Ten Commandments. Do you know them? Now, I'm embarrassed to say, as I thought about this, I cannot name them in order definitely by memory. Yes, it's this, 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 and I, I can't do that. I could probably name all ten, and I'm sure I could do it if I could write it down and say which one am I missing. But just to say them in order from memory, I, I can't do it. Might be good memory work to do, by the way, if you don't know them. Um, I'll, I'll say that I'm going to give it a shot. But what I really want to ask you is not do you have them memorized. That's not really the point. Not just are you familiar, familiar with them, but are those ten words, those ten commandments, a part of who you are? Are those ten commandments a good indicator of what you do or don't do? And I know some of you are going, no, wait a second, wait a second. We're not under the old covenant, so I don't really have to keep the Ten Commandments. But shouldn't you? I mean, should you really not kill people? Should you really not lie, steal? Should you really love the Lord your God and have no other gods before Him? Well, of course. And that's the point. I think it's safe to say that if your life is marked by not keeping the Ten Commandments, if you do lie, you do steal, you do kill and such, well, that's not a good thing. Safe to say, I think. So the Ten Commandments are desirable for us to follow as closely as we can, but the question is, how closely can we follow these Ten Commandments? And how closely should we keep the Ten Commandments? And, do we have to? Well, in a roundabout way, we're going to answer those questions in our, in our passage today. We're actually going to read Matthew 19, 13 through 30, but our focus is going to be on 13 through 22 this morning. Next week, Lord willing, if we're here and Jesus hadn't come back and we're able to meet again, we'll do 23 through 30 next week. But we're going to read 13 through 30 this morning, and then we'll focus on 13 through 22. So again, if you are able, please stand out of reverence for the God of the Word and the Word of God. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them. And went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. The young man said to him, All these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty 
will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, please, by the power of your Spirit to understand and to do what you are saying to us today. Convict us of our sins, tear us down and build us up, and make us more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. We need your Spirit's help, and we ask for Him to help us and expect it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we'll start 13 through 15, which really uh, could have been a message in and of itself. But if you were with us for Matthew 18, this is really a whole lot like Matthew 18. And Matthew 18 was several weeks of a lot of stuff. And it really, you kind of see it in action here. So we're going to just take 13 through 15 together for a moment and then get into the rest of the passage. It says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So two weeks ago, when, when we had started into Matthew 19, we'd said that Jesus is in Perea, which is Judea beyond the Jordan. So if you're standing in Jerusalem, you look to the east, and you go past the Jordan River, this is the area to the east of the Jordan River. Uh, if you're looking from Jerusalem, if you're looking on a map, it's to the right across the river Jordan. And as he was there, he had come down, he, he it ended his Galilean ministry up north, and he's coming down, and he's really starting his march to the cross in earnest now. But he's in area, not in Jerusalem, but to the east of Jerusalem. And, and, and then what we saw two weeks ago, the Pharisees had come up, and they had connived, which is a great word, connived. And they asked Jesus about divorce. They were testing him. They were trying to trap him, it said. And particularly what they wanted to know, they wanted to know if it was all right for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. They were trying to trap him by making him come out against divorce, which they knew he would because the Bible is clear that God hates divorce. And they hoped that he would say that publicly and they hoped that Herod Antipas would catch wind of that and take off Jesus' head like Herod had done to John the Baptist who had confronted Herod about it not being right that Herod had his brother Philip's wife. So now we find Jesus and his men in that same region, Judea beyond the Jordan, Perea, on the east side of the Jordan River. And now he's going to be confronted in this short passage with his view on children. While he's serving and ministering, some people brought children to him. And the text says that they did so, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Now Luke's account says infants 
instead of children. So that gives us a better idea. These are little children, showing how little these tykes were. These people were asking this miracle-working rabbi to pronounce a blessing over their babies. Because why not, right? How many times do we ask God to bless our kids? Hopefully lots. If you're not asking God to bless your kids, ask God to bless your kids. Because you should. So these people want Jesus to do the same for their kids. Seems to make sense. But the disciples are all like, hey, Jesus ain't got no time for no babies. He's busy, y'all. That's what he'd say if they happened in West Virginia beyond the new. Okay? So I don't know how many people were there, but if, if, if it's anything like what Jesus has done in the past, it's a big crowd. Okay? So I don't know what volume of babies or kids we're talking about here, but the disciples just weren't having it. They're like, hey, we're busy. Jesus is a busy man. He don't have time for babies. And how did Jesus reply? He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. To which I would translate in the new Jason version that he's saying, back it up. Y'all should already know this. If you look at Mark's account, there's an insertion of a word that shows how upset Jesus was. Mark 10, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. I'll get to them. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them, which is a beautiful picture, by the way. But I just read that passage in Mark to show you that that word indignant is in there. Jesus wasn't just, guys, come on. He was indignant. And that word means to be sore displeased. And why was he indignant with them? Chapter 18 is why he was sore displeased with them. He had spent that whole chapter, and we spent four or five weeks, I think, talking about what? That little child in Jesus' arms in Matthew 18. They asked who was greatest in the kingdom. They had been arguing about who was greatest. And Jesus says, you want to know who's greatest? Bring me a baby. And he held that baby in his arms. He said, unless you are converted and become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he spent the rest of the chapter expanding on that. So he's like, guys, you should know I got time for babies. I got time for little ones because this is what my kingdom is made up of. Those who are like babies. The little child in Jesus' arm, the very picture of what those in his kingdom are to look like. For to such, he says, belongs the kingdom of heaven. So this really turned into an opportunity for Jesus to reinforce what he taught in chapter 18 about the kingdom and how those in that kingdom should see and conduct themselves And he said ultimately that they should see themselves and conduct themselves like helpless infants needing his blessing. And here he says, this is exactly what I was talking about. And then we get this in contrast. And I do say in contrast in the next verse. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, things are about to get real interesting here. Note the first clause, and behold. If you don't remember, as we've gone through Matthew, we've seen this phrase several times. This is Matthew's way of saying, hey, stop and look at this. It's a big deal. 
And what are we to behold? A man comes up to Jesus, and this man's got something to say. And I think it's interesting to note that this is a man, which is in contrast to what? The babies that Jesus was just blessing. Jesus had given his his attention to them, taken them in his arms, touched them, prayed for them, blessed them. Those babies had gotten the disciples rebuked. And then those same babies got brought to Jesus and got Jesus' full attention and affection. Now this man comes up to Jesus. You see the contrast? If not, you will. This man says to Jesus, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Hmm. (laughs) Now there's a lot going on here with this question. And it's gospel important. How important? Well, this account is in all three synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. And this account is in all three of them. And why is it in all three of them? Why is it in all three of them? Why is it so important? Well, if it's any indicator, R.C. Sproul calls this guy coming up to Jesus every man, which is another indicator of how pertinent this account is. He is us, and we are him. We are he. He, he. So let me ask you this question. Do you think that you have ever felt or thought this way before, what he's, what he's asking, what he's doing? And I'm talking about before and after conversion, if you're saved. It's a burning question on a lot of people's minds, not everybody's. But a lot of people's minds, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What have I got to do to make it to heaven? This is the most basic existential question that we can ask. And hopefully, if I knew how to get to heaven, I'd share it with other people, right? I mean, right? I know how to get to heaven. I know what you got to do to get to heaven. Hopefully we'd be sharing that with other people. Well, this guy apparently thinks that Jesus can answer his question. But look at how he addresses Jesus. Teacher. Teacher? Is that it? Is he just a good rabbi? Is it the tassels that give it away? Is it the way that he dresses? Is it the fact that he's got disciples? Oh, this guy's a teacher. I bet he can answer my question. Obviously, all that Jesus is to this guy is a good teacher, which that's not wrong, but that's not all that he is. He is a good teacher, but that's not all he is. He only addresses Jesus as teacher, and that's a good indicator of where his mindset is. And look at the way he asks this teacher this question. What good deed must I do to have Eternal life. Now, hopefully, if you're sitting here and you're a believer, you see the problems with this question. Right? And there's many of them. There's not just one. And we won't take time to address them all or we'd be here till after lunch. And y'all won't have that. So, But let's address the most glaring of them all. This guy thinks that he can do something that merits or earns him eternal life. He's looking for a box to check. 
a thing to accomplish, a task to finish. And he is, in essence, saying, if you'll tell me what it is, I'll do it. Because I want eternal life. Who wouldn't, right? Would you like to have eternal life? Oh, yeah, what do I got to do? And that's what this guy's saying. I want eternal life. And he says it pretty simply. What good deed must I do? Tell me the one thing so that I can hurry up and do it and just chill out and relax. This guy should have been given the rebuke that the disciples gave the children. Because he's not even close to understanding what Jesus is about. This teacher, who is actually God in the flesh, addresses that in the next verse, 17. And Jesus, he said to the man, Why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, isn't that interesting? What's going on here? It seems like Jesus is testing the waters to see if this guy will affirm Jesus as Lord and God, which Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knew where this was going. It's not like Jesus was surprised. He knew that he wouldn't affirm Jesus as God in the flesh. But Jesus seems to be leading him that way, just kind of pushing the boat ever so gently to go that way. Go, we go this way? Why do you ask me about what's good, Jesus says. And it's like he's prodding this fella. He's saying, come on, come on. Why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one who's good. Which, who's the only one who's good? God, right? Jesus is leading the guy this way. But you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, Right? Why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one who's good. And if the guy would have said, only God is good, Jesus could have said, then why are you asking me what's, about what's good? And then maybe the guy could have said, well, I believe that you're God in the flesh. I believe that you're the Son of God, the Messiah. But he doesn't. Jesus gently prods him. Jesus leads him this way, but the bobber just doesn't even dance. No bite. So Jesus gives them an answer. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now does that furrow your brow a little bit? What? It does me. Why would Jesus say this? Well, if you want to enter life, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to keep the commandments. Hmm. Well, for sure, keep in mind... That Jesus does know this guy's heart and he saw the gaping hole in this guy's opening question. So Jesus is telling him what has to happen according to God's plan for a person to have eternal life. And and what has to happen is you have got to keep the commandments. Now where does that come from? Well, the Bible, actually. The Jews of that day would have looked to what we call the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God. And so do we, by the way. And look at these verses from the Old Testament. Leviticus 18.5 You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Three verses in Ezekiel 20. God speaking about the Jews. 20.11 I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, 
he shall live. Verse 13, But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. And then in verse 21, But the children rebelled against me, God says. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, by the way, God says again, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. So in these statements in Leviticus and Ezekiel, and there are others, God tells His people that His law leads to life. And if you keep the law, you will live. So Jesus gives the requirement to this guy, keep the commandments. That seems like a monumental task, doesn't it? I hope it does. It's designed to. But what's your guy? I like this guy, but he's in trouble. He said to Jesus, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> so Jesus says, okay, you want, to, you want eternal life? Keep the commandments. And what's the guy say? Which ones? I can just see him holding his arms out. It's a Ric Flair feel. Woo! Which ones? Hit me with them, Jesus. Jesus says, keep the commandments. And our singly, simple-minded fellow wants to split the hair a little finer. So he says, which ones? Keep the commandments, Jesus says. Which ones, the guy says. Come on, Jesus, be realistic. You in no way could possibly mean that I've got to keep all 613 commands that are found in the Torah. You can't mean that. So which ones? What are the important ones? That's crazy talk, Jesus. Which ones? And Jesus plays this guy's game. And he gives him the answer to the which ones question. And Jesus starts, it seems to be, in a strange place. He starts with the second table of the law that we call the Ten Commandments. So the first table are our responsibilities toward God. You shall have no other gods before me. Honor the Lord your God. No graven images, keep the Sabbath, that kind of thing. And that second table has to do with our obligations to our neighbor. One commentator put it this way. Another question triggers further discussion about the law. It comes from an unidentified young man who asked Jesus about doing good things to enter the kingdom. Listen to what this commentator says. This is good. While modern evangelists might present this man with the gospel in six easy steps, Jesus' response seems designed to turn him away. Jesus refers to the commandments, explicitly mentioning the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 5th, and 10th laws in the Decalogue, in that order. But implying the continued authority of all ten. Keeping these commandments, Jesus says, is the way to enter life. End of quote. So this part, these particular commandments, in all actuality, are really the easier part. Because for me to have no other gods before God... Have no graven images to honor him and to follow. The the God ones are are much harder, I think, than not stealing, not lying, not committing adultery. I mean, if I've got a little bit of restraint, I can do those things. I cannot do those things, I should say. 
It's not really not that hard to not lie, steal, or kill. Hopefully not. So how does this guy respond? The young man said to him, all these I've kept. So what do I still like? I like this guy. He's in trouble, but I like this guy. The young man says to Jesus, all these I have kept. What do I still like? Oh, these old things? Oh, that's easy. Mark and Luke add that the guy says he's kept these commandments from his youth. He's always kept these commandments, he says. I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen. I've never borne false witness. I've always honored my father and mother, and I've always loved my neighbor as myself. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, right. Now, even if we don't get into the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus equates anger with murder, lust with adultery, and all that, for this guy to say he's always and never done these things, I mean, really? I've kept those from my youth. Really? No way. Absolutely no way. And then if we do throw in Jesus' full explanation of the intent of the law, we know that this guy is talking out of his head. He cannot say that he's just checked all these boxes off the list and so give me just one more so that I can fulfill it and be done with this thing. But that's exactly what he's doing. He says, yeah, all those are done. Give me something else. I'll do that too. This is easy peasy. I think I like this heaven stuff. It's easy. Then Jesus lowers the boom. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. A capital O. Uh Uh-oh. Wow. Now, now, now what, what, what's going on here? Is Jesus just randomly saying something to up the ante? All right, fella. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Let's see what you can and can't do. Not at all. Jesus hears this guy say that he's kept the easy commandments. And so what does he do? He looks into the guy's heart and he sees something there. He sees a love of money. A love of stuff. Because this guy's got a lot of it. He sees an idol. And so he takes the keeping the commandments thing back to square one. Actually back to commandment one. What was the first commandment? We read it this morning. We'll read it again here. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first of the Ten Commandments is that God's people are to have no other gods before Him. And Jesus sees the idol of money and things and stuff as the first recipient of this guy's affections. And He meets and challenges him right there. You want the magic key to heaven, young man? Well, then get rid of all your little G-gods especially this wealth one, because you can't even start thinking about the other commandments until you've mastered the first one. 
And in order for this man to do that, he was going to have to give up his treasure here by selling what he possessed and give that money to the poor, store up treasures in heaven, and then leave it all behind and follow Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. Do we got to sell all of our stuff if we're going to go to heaven? I don't know about y'all, I got a lot of stuff. And I don't see that in the Romans road. None righteous, no, not one. All of sin fall short of the glory. Sell your stuff. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus bringing this up? Does this mean that this is what salvation looks like for everybody? The answer is yes and no. I.D. Campbell in his commentary says this, Jesus was not advocating the selling of our possessions as an absolute condition for entering the kingdom. If he were, he would have said this to everyone and there would be no rich believers in the Bible. Rather, he was using this to expose the true nature of the young man's heart. Although like Paul, he was blameless in his law keeping. Philippians 3.6, Paul says that he was blameless as far as the law goes. He was still a slave to materialism and his many possessions. His life might have been morally exemplary, but his heart was not in love with God. End of quote. So I would say, no, we don't have to sell everything in order to get into heaven. But I would say, yes, we do have to have a heart that loves God more than anything or anyone else. More than things, stuff, money, your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, your mom, your dad. Yourself. Do we have to do that? Yeah. We got to do that. And this guy's little G God was his stuff. And Jesus knew what was first in this guy's heart and he pointed it out. So now, how'd it go for him? Verse 22, our last verse today. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Wow. What a sobering closing statement for today. Yikes. To help get the emotional weight of this, let me look at Mark 10.21. Watch this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. So this is not just some cocksure, cocky young guy. Tell me what I got to do, Jesus. And Jesus is like, I'll show you, you little punk. That's not what's going on here. Jesus loves this guy. Go sell all that you got, brother. I've got something better for you than your stuff. Come, follow me. I love you. Come follow me. Come know my love. Come experience my love. Come see grace like you've never seen in your life. Come be with me. Follow me. And the guy hangs his head. Jesus, before leveling this stunning blow to this guy, is said to look on him and love him. And then we get the response from the guy in question. And this guy whom Jesus had looked at with love, hears Jesus' words, and he went away sorrowful. 
full of sorrow. Why? Because he had great possessions. And that implies that this guy loved his possessions more than Jesus. And Jesus loved this guy without being loved in return. This guy had come up guns blazing. And he went away with his tail between his legs. The poorest rich man on the earth that day. The God of the universe had offered him eternal life. If he would just walk away from temporary wealth, which is all going to burn anyway, and live for heavenly rewards, and he walks away sorrowful. Again, why? Because all that stuff that he had was his God. And the thought of worshiping a different God than that God made him sad. If eternal life meant leaving his stuff now, then he was sad. And sad he was. And Jesus watched him walk away. And Jesus had known this was going to happen. And what we'll look at, Lord willing, next week helps explain that. But I want you to just feel the emotional weight of what just happened. What have I got to do to inherit eternal life? Get rid of your stuff and come follow me. Oh, I can't do that. You don't, you don't really mean that, do you? I mean, I could fund your ministry, Jesus. You don't know the wealth, the influence, and the power that I have in this region, Jesus. You want me to walk, walk away from it? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Do you not know who I am? And Jesus is like, yeah, I know exactly who you are. Go get rid of all of it and come follow me. No, I can't do that. Just imagine him walking up the road, head hung down, full of sorrow, and the Son of God watching him walk away from him. So the question is, what about us? Where do we stand here? I've been in places in the world where I've seen poor people. Kids living in trash dumps. Men and women laying on the side of the road with nowhere to go. Nothing but the few threads that they have covering their bodies. I've seen poor people. I don't see one here today. We've got much. You say, well, you don't really know my situation. I I don't really need to. I got two eyes. So what are we going to do with this? How are we going to apply this in our day to our lives? Now, Jesus didn't speak this to us, but he did record it for us so that we would see it. So there's application here for us, right? Three S's. Silver, sad, and salvation. Our application points today are silver, sad, and salvation. Don't just memorize them. Listen to what they mean, please. Silver. What are we talking about with silver? Riches, wealth, treasures, prosperity. And that's us. And what I want to say to you in this application point is, 
There is inherent danger in wealth, prosperity, treasures, things, and stuff. They're not bad. They're not wrong. But they are inherently dangerous. I don't know... In our day, in our time, the people that I know, love, walk around with, spend time with, I don't know that there's a greater danger in our Christian lives than prosperity. And we'll certainly discuss this more in depth in the next message, Lord willing. But what's the reason that the man walked away sad from the presence of Jesus in today's passage? Because he had great possessions. His wealth literally estranged him from the blessings of God. He had approached Jesus with a wealthy man's attitude. Oh, good teacher. What do I got to do to get this eternal life thing? I got a lot of things. I got a lot of stuff. What do I got to do to get your thing? What do I got to do to get heaven? What's it going to cost me? Just tell me. I'll handle this business. I'm a business handler. It's what I do. Tell me what I got to do and I'll do it. Not only was he materially wealthy, but he was also steeped in self-worth. And what did we see at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that word poor means a crouching beggar. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Those people are blessed. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is eternal life. This guy today was wealthy, and that wealth is what kept him from not only financial poverty, but from the poverty of spirit that understands that we have nothing that we can do to earn the grace of God. What have I got to do? I got nothing to fill in that blank for you. Nothing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mentioned Deuteronomy earlier. Look at this passage in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. The Israelites are about to go into the promised land. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you didn't build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, take care! lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Please listen to me, church. Wealth, things, stuff, money, and the like have a strong amnesiac influence in our lives. We start to forget that it's God who is the keeper and sustainer of our very lives and that apart from Him, we literally can do nothing. I won't spend any more time here in this application point, mostly because so much of this is in the next passage as well. But for today, the application for us is to look for, to see, and to know the inherent danger of wealth to draw our attention and affections away from God. I will say again, wealth is not wrong. Wealth is not bad. But it is an inherent danger because it makes us forget God. 
Just a few chapters ago, Jesus had admonished his men, and by association us, in Matthew 16, 26, when he said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Wealth puts us in great danger of doing that very thing. Wealth puts us in great danger of forfeiting our souls. Now, if you're a believer, you're secure, and you're going to persevere. And along the way, you can forget about God. It can happen. Don't let it happen. Don't let wealth draw your gaze away from the glory of God. Because it can and it will. Silver. The next one is sad. This one really hit me the hardest, I think. I think this guy in our passage today, walking away from Jesus... Sad is one of the saddest scenes in the New Testament. He had come up. He was all sure of himself. And he was seeking what he called eternal life. And this guy had Jesus, the author of all life, right in front of him. So he had the very thing he was looking for right in front of him. Free for the taking. Now... If there's something that you've wanted for a long time and you get to the point where you can have it and you can take it and it can be yours, when you get it, you're like, yes, this, I've, I've always wanted this. Castle Grayskull, right? Some of y'all don't know. I do. Christmas morning, first rip of the paper, you see that skull, you're like, yes. You're like, you talk about that a lot. Listen, it was formative, Okay. It is formative. I mean, it was something I'd always wanted. And I got it. And there was joy. That guy had the opportunity for that joy. Well, probably greater joy than Castle Grayskull. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give that. But he walked away. How? Sad. He walked away from Jesus sad. He had the opportunity to know life and that life more abundant than anything that he could think or imagine, but instead he walked away sad. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever read in the Bible and seen something? you ever received a command or a word from God in the Bible that made you sad? What I mean is, You see clearly what the will and plan of God is, but instead of it leading you to joy, it leads you to sadness. God is maybe calling you to give up something. God is calling you to do something different, move somewhere. And again, is it going to say that in the Bible? No, it's not going to say that in the Bible. But you're like, this is God's plan. And you realize it and you go, oh no. I don't, I don't want that. And God's going, this is my will for your life. And it makes us sad. Ever been there? I spent this weekend with some pastors at a retreat and heard some of them say that the very thing they didn't want to do is what God placed before them to do. Ever been there? You know, you're, you're supposed to do something, you're supposed to give something, you're supposed to give up something, or maybe deal with that one person that you just don't want to deal with, and when it comes down to it, the will of God makes you sad. God, I don't want to do that. Not that. Not that thing. Come on, God. 
and you're ranting and you're railing and your prayer closet looks more like a rumble box because you're like, no, no. No, not that. Please, not that. No. Well, let me tell you, if you haven't experienced this, you probably will. Why? Because this is how God deals with our idols. And if he's not dealing with your idols, he is either about to or you're really not a Christian. You say, well, that's not nice. God will have no rivals in your life. And if you have that person or that thing or that job or that hobby or whatever that's diverting your attention or your affection away from God, I promise you that God will call for you to lay that Isaac on the altar. You have to be willing to give it up at His command. And it will make you sad. Because you love it. And truthfully, you love it more than you love God. And God's not going to let you languish there. He has too much for you that is good. True good, eternal good. And He's not going to let you hold on to an opinion or a thought or a word or a thing or a person to the point that it diverts your affection away from Him. He's not going to let you do that. And that can make us really sad. Just like this guy today. You have to be willing to give that thing up at His command and it will make you sad. But ultimately it's for our best good and our highest joy. Listen to me. The Word of God is to be a reason to rejoice in our lives. If things stand in the way of that joy and my cooperating with the Word of God and the Word of God operating in me, get rid of them. We are to be those who rejoice fully in the will, plan, and glory of God. The psalmist says it over and over and over again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119 is full of these things. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And yes, the Word of God will make you sad. But ultimately it makes you sad so that you can find your joy in it, in Him. And this is about the law of God, by the way. What about those of us that are recipients of grace? How much more should the will and the Word of God delight us? To the point that even suffering does not lead us to ultimate sadness, but to ultimate joy. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, listen to this. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I could stop there, but I'm not going to. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That trial, that thing that is weighing you down, that is making you sad, is producing in you 
endurance and character and hope. And ultimately that hope will not put you to shame. Because it's God's love, it's God's Holy Spirit, it's God's Word that is ultimately going to be your joy. Even that thing, that suffering that would normally lead to sadness in the kingdom of God ultimately leads to our ultimate joy. The word, the plan, the glory of God in our abundance or in our suffering do not lead us to despair, but rather they lead us to exult in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the application here is, if there are these things that God is doing in your life that is making you sad, let them go, give them up. Do what He's asking you to do, and it will lead to your ultimate joy because He will be glorified. Don't walk away from the will of God sad and say, I don't want that. Finally, salvation. This passage today addresses the very topic of salvation. Maybe not in the way that we're used to, though. The question is asked, how are we saved? What have I got to do to inherit eternal life? Is it by keeping the commandments? Is it by selling all that you have? Because that's exactly what Jesus said today. What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. Which ones? The ones pertaining to loving your neighbor. Oh, that's easy. I've been doing that since I was a baby. Is there anything else? Oh, yeah. Sell your stuff and come follow me. Oh, well, that's, that's kind of sad, Jesus. See, you're not doing that. Now, let me ask you this. Would any of you, any of us, answer someone in that way if they asked us how to be saved? And if we did, would we be right? My answer is yes. Let me explain. You see, there's only one way to be saved. And that is by perfect obedience to God's law. Some of you are going, what? I didn't sign up for that. The law has to be kept down to the last jot and tittle. There's no other way for you to enter heaven. And the first law in the summary of the law of God is to have no other gods before the Lord God Almighty, which means our things and stuff have to have a subordinate position in our lives. So Jesus, as usual, was absolutely right to address this guy this way. He wasn't tricking him. He wasn't being mean. So how are you doing with all this? Back to our Ten Commandments topic. I can promise you that I have and you have broken every single one of the Ten Commandments. Every one of them. Multiple times. So you can't keep the law perfectly. You're already disqualified. And I can promise you that there are things and or people and or attitudes and or thoughts in your life that are idolatrous. Exerting themselves above God. So now you're double disqualified. Your treasure weighs you down to earth, keeping you from heaven. So you are in a terrible spot, my friend. What are you going to do? How are you going to save yourself? You can't. The Bible is clear that there is none righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are lawbreakers and idolaters, every single one of us. But 
There is one who has kept the law perfectly. There is one who gloriously outshines even our most prized treasures and is worthy of all of our worship. He is the same Jesus that this man walked away sad from in our passage today. And you today are at the same crisis point that this man was. What will you do with Jesus today? Instead of coming to Him, asking what you can do to save yourself, what you need to do is come to Him and admit that you are a sinner, unable to save yourself, unable to keep the law perfectly to get into heaven, but also admit that you know that He has kept that law perfectly and also died to pay the penalty for your sins. And since He did that, the wrath of God against your sins is spent, never to be brought up again. And then by faith, receive the grace of God that leads to salvation. And you will not leave the presence of Jesus sad, but rather He will be your treasure, your great reward, your very salvation. I want to read this. Just read it. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the very least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everybody who will believe. Believe this gospel. I just read it to you. 11 verses of glory. Believe it. Put your trust in this gospel. Stop your striving. Put down your deadly doings. Give up your silver. Don't walk away from Jesus sad. No salvation. St. Augustine said our best virtues are but splendid vices. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said as long as a man thinks he can save himself, he remains lost. Don't walk away from Jesus sad today. Trust Him. Rest in Him. Believe in Him. And receive the eternal life that only He can give to you. Let's pray. Father, we are weak creatures. Far weaker than we understand or know. But You know. You know. So we come to you and ask you to convict us of our sins. Show us the glorious sacrifice of Jesus to pay the penalty for those sins. The glorious rising of Jesus from the dead to overwhelm the grave and death. Show us him alive, ascended, seated at your right hand in the place of all glory. And help us to know that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we bend that knee now, Lord. And may we not leave this place sad.
May we leave this place rejoicing in you and your will for us. Help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? This is a little bit different benediction than you might be used to. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Providence Bible Church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great day. If you want to congregate, hang out and talk, please do so outside. Love you guys.